you've been a midwife for almost three decades. What do you know now that you wish was common knowledge? Trying to do everything myself is foolish. What I know now is that I really can depend on people and that I am blessed to be associated with fabulous women who are birth keepers that are extraordinary. And my job now that I'm in my 60s is more to get out of the way and to support everybody shining, especially this next generation of of birth keepers. It's just, it's extraordinary. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor, and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Crazy Breastfeeding Booby Club of Indonesia. Okay, everybody's here. Okay, Jenny, you're gonna introduce everybody. Hello and welcome to the Worldwide Midwifery Podcast. I'm your host, Augustine Colebrook, and I am here live in Indonesia. This special episode featuring midwife Ibu Robin Lim and a whole team of breastfeeding experts and advocates is being recorded live and on-site in Ubud, a small traditional village in the heart of Bali. Sitting here in this busy cafe, I'm going to just pass the mic around and capture the wisdom. I know the recording quality is not the same here in the field, but I also know we don't want to miss out on the magic that is this collection of experts here live in Indonesia. Please enjoy. It's really good. 
So we are having a very wonderful, beautiful evening with beautiful, gorgeous, powerful women. <laughs> Ibu Dr. Utami Rusli, pediatrician uh, FABM. Ibu Diah Pratisa, Pratitasari, uh, Dula Dona. Ibu Nia Umar, uh, IBSLC. Dr. Hikmah Kurniasari, MPH, and Ibu Eka, the Secretary of the Bumi Sehat uh, Foundation in Bali, and myself, uh, the HR Advisor and Grant Partnership at the Bumi Sehat Clinic in Bali. So, Ibu Robin, of course, last but not least, she is the founder and director of the Bumi Sehat International Foundation. Thank you so much. My role is on a part-time basis assisting the Bumi Sehat in terms of its human resource management as well as the co-writing uh, the grant and partnership sort of agreement and in cooperation with all levels of people and you know um, donors uh, in Bumi Sehat or you know outside of the Bumi Sehat basically collaborating on how to uh, make sure that we not only have enough grants but also to help our human resource growing in terms of its skills knowledge and how we improve the system of our uh, performance and service to mothers and babies Yes, because I learned from the expert. Look at the lady next to me, <laughs> Ibu Robin. <laughs> She's pretty awesome. We all learning from her. Yes, yes. For this particular one, yes, as we are gathered here, is actually a, a part of the follow-up and also part of the activities that we just have been having. So actually, we still have another one tomorrow, the workshops of lactation. So we have a uh, lactation expert from Indonesia, Dr. Uzdami. So the workshops uh, are a series of uh, workshops focusing on the development of medical team members of the Bumi Sehat Clinic in Bali in uh, various variety kind of issues. So lactation is one of them. Gentle birth, of course, we are the pioneer in Indonesia, especially with the, uh, you know, of course, the fan Ibu Robin to uh, sustain the knowledge and the um, um, maintenance of how it is going to be uh, further developed and also uh, served throughout the uh, you know islands indonesia for other team uh, members you know through various kinds of facilities that you know loving mothers and babies um, i've been only here for nearly four years and probably five years at bumi sehat we are very well known for its gentle birth meaning that we really truly support you know mothers have their own power their natural powers to to heal themselves and give birth naturally you know and also we do really look after their beliefs systems culture culturally wise and how they would like to be treated you know so family members are of course important for us to work with and so yes uh, i can say that actually we are the bumi sehat clinic in bali and also uh, not only in bali we have in papua in aceh in uh, lombok and also in philippine ibuya and ibu robin also initiated the idea of spreading the the principles of the gentle birth throughout the world actually yes and so 
that's what we basically believe in and what we've been truly doing. Yeah. Yes, that we are discussing, and I know that the experts are just right next yeah. to me. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, uh, you know, we have uh, we've seen that they are solely connected. Ibu Robin Lim and Dr. Rusli, so they share common goals. You know, so I don't know who's going to start with. So let's start with Ibu Robin. Yeah. Hi, Salamat Malam. I'm so honored to be here with one of my heroes, some of a few of my heroes here, the people that really are making a difference in a country where, for example, if a baby in Indonesia is fed with infant formula, the chances of that baby dying in the first year of life is 300 times higher than a baby who is fed with mother's milk. And this is, this is something that is so, so compelling that actually breastfeeding saves lives and all of the women sitting at this table have saved an unknown number of infant lives by advocating for breastfeeding and it's why we at Bumisayat all of the midwives Dr. Dayu our head of medicine all of our administration even our housekeeping staff if they notice a mother struggling with housekeep with the housekeepers notice a mother struggling with breastfeeding they'll they'll come to the midwives and say, hey, the mother over there is struggling quietly. Do you think you could help? So everyone is involved with breastfeeding because we know it saves lives. But even further back than that, prenatal care. When you walk into the prenatal care room, there's a, there's a piece of artwork of breastfeeding. The midwives discuss breastfeeding at each prenatal visit, just little things, because mothers decide about breastfeeding before they actually have the baby. And we know this. And we also know that a gentle childbirth where the mother is respected by her healthcare providers and by her family, we know that that is, sets the, the right stage for success in breastfeeding. And so we also know that Bumisayat is just one small nonprofit organization with a few locations in two countries. But then we've been super excited about Dr. Utami coming because Dr. Rusli Utami has really, she's had a national effect on the fourth largest country in the world. So I'm going to hand her the microphone. The first time we met, I feel very honored that you even, even, know my name <laughs> you are it's just and then well actually because I stay in this business for so long <laughs> so that's that's why I'm, maybe I'm the grandmother of breastfeeding actually <laughs> the, the problem is the problem is uh, in our curriculum as a medical doctor as a pediatrician as a midwife, we don't have that curriculum about breastfeeding. Not yet. Not yet. And it's That's been... That's why there's no rest for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I just told you this. I just did that strong in here in breastfeeding. Okay. And what amazed me is that it's not only for the baby. It's for the mother, too. And uh, I just read... I just heard that uh, they need 40 years, 40 years to have study that to study this that the breastfeeding is not only for the, the baby, it's for the mother, and they just the world just acknowledged that in 2011. 
It just needs it. So if if you we call it if you make the baby if you make the baby, the baby cannot breastfeed, so the mother will have an impact too. And uh, just like one of the one of the reasons why I I involved in this breastfeeding things. Uh, my mother is a pediatrician too. My only sister, elder sister, is uh, ENT. And my younger brother is a professor of, uh, of uh, nephrology, um, hypertension and uh, nephrology. All of my people, all my, my cousin, my, all of us is a lot of medical doctor. But when I have my boys, two boys, in 1972 or then 1974, nobody knows about breastfeeding at all, actually. Not even the world. 70? And I was delivering my, uh, in the hospital where my mother is a pediatrician for 25 years, something like that. And as usual, they <coughs> separate us. Yeah. The baby in the baby's room and... And they said, they said, oh, the first day there's no milk at all. See, they're still up until now. So they give, you know, what they call pre-lactal feeding. They use bottle and teeth and some formula in the first one or two days. And they just bring the baby to me every two hours. And now I know when I become a lactation consultant, I can understand why my baby cannot breastfeed. Because uh, it's difficult. My, my breast is not, uh, it will be what you call nipple confusion. Yeah. So I just can, my milk has already come uh, already one or two months. But that time, nobody knows about expressing breast milk. So never, nobody knows. So if, if my baby cannot uh, take it out, it will stop producing. And then, in 1989, I get breast cancer. In 2009, Professor Sonberg, Katarina Sonberg, uh, found out that there is what they call an anti-tumor in the breast, our breast. They call it Hamlet. Human alpha-like albumin made little to tumor cell. No, I, I understand why I got my uh, cancer. And by that time, if you had cancer in Indonesia, you will not live. 1989? No. I not only me. I, we, we are, you know, five, five, my, five of my cousins, they got this breast cancer too. Because we don't know about breastfeeding at all. And only me survive. Why? Because I, I think it's God hand. Because I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't know why. Up until now, I can understand. But they choose me to become a guinea pig in Rotterdam in Holland. And the time there's a hospital, a Daniel Dunhut Hospital. Doctor Daniel Dunhut is uh, his, his wife passed away because of breast cancer. So he but a research center for breast cancer. And I've become one of the breast cancer uh, uh, guinea pig. <laughs> so you can see me now. <laughs> if not, <laughs> you will not see me. Because all my 
my cousin there passed away. No one, no one knows about breastfeeding, uh, cancer that time. So that's why most of that, you, you drive me to learn about breastfeeding more. So maybe this young generation will not suffer like what I am suffering. That's actually why it be like this. You're our blessing, our angel. Thank heaven you survived. Yeah. But I mean, I just keep thinking this, the impact you've had on the fourth largest country in the world to advocate for breastfeeding. Because when I came here, uh, it's been 29 years ago, um, in the kampong, in the villages, yes, the mothers were breastfeeding, but in the cities, they were not. And even to the point where some people in Jakarta were saying, yes, but Indonesians don't breastfeed. And I thought, all the Indonesians I know, because we're in a small village, are all breastfeeding. And I thought, and broke my heart that so many were not breastfeeding. And it was, it was as if uh, part of modernization was to reject this biological, beautiful, amazing superpower that we have as women, and that our babies need and that we need as well. And uh, I have... I think one of the happiest days of my life was when Indonesia initiated the ASI exclusive for the first six, exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life. And I remember our friend Opi Andarista, who recently yeah, had yeah. her baby yeah. at Bumisehat. She, and you know why she came to Bumisehat? Because every time she went to the doctor in Jakarta for checkup, she was told, oh, Harusesar, you need a cesarean. Why, Doc? Is there something wrong? No, but you're famous. Anak Mahal, the baby's so precious. And she said, but all children are precious. And her main objective as a famous singer in this country was to breastfeed so that other women would model the yeah. breastfeeding after her. So in her opinion, she knew that, okay, she has the income. If she has to feed the baby infant formula, she will feed the infant formula properly and her baby would survive. If her baby gets sick every three or four weeks because of the bottle feeding, she has the money to go to the doctor. But she knew that the women who listen to her songs do not have the same resources. And she th thought of the thousands of babies that could perish if she modeled infant formula feeding. So she was determined to breastfeed. So she heard about Bumi Sehad where it's natural childbirth. And she showed up on our doorstep. We saw it. Literally, we saw it in the newspaper before we saw her face. And she showed up. We were shocked. We kept, we kept saying, we heard this rumor, some rumor. And then reporters were calling Ibu Eka and saying, why is, why is Opie Andarista coming to give birth in Bumi Sehat? What, how did you get her? We said, we didn't get her. We don't even know her. And then she showed up. And it was her main concern was breastfeeding. And then the baby was one month old. And she was invited to sing for our president. And to be uh, there to advocate for the opening ceremonies of the exclusive breastfeeding initiative for our country. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, of course you were there. But I remember, you know, she called me from the, she called me from outside. And she said, she was crying. She said, Ibu, they say that the baby can't go in. Because, you know, uh, it's a very yeah. It's a very formal government event, and she said, "I have to go in. I have to sing." 
I have to represent breastfeeding, but I can't go in without without my one-month-old baby. He's exclusively breastfeeding. So I said, let me talk to the guard at the door who's stopping you. And I talked to him. I said, okay, I'm calling the Jakarta Post, and we're going to say that in this very special ceremony to advocate for breastfeeding, you're not allowing the breastfeeding baby to come in, an exclusively breastfed child. So you're, you're forbidding him to enter? I said... And I'm going to ask Opie's family to take pictures right now of you. <laughs> of course they let her in. Of course they let her in. But, you know, this, is, this was revolutionary. Yes. And revolutionary with like a small R and a big E, like evolutionary. Oh, yes. And I have been so proud. It made me so happy. I was dizzy. Welcome to the Midwifery Wisdom Collective, a community for midwives. Whether you're a seasoned midwife, just starting midwifery school, or in between, we have something for you. On our website, midwiferywisdom.com, you can find sources of all things support, community, and education. Our collective offers a podcast hosted by four incredible midwives covering a variety of topics, online courses that range from hands-on skills such as fetal heart tone monitoring to business marketing skills and more, and we have a blog and YouTube channel that highlight a variety of educational and self-care topics. We also have different consulting options if you need more individualized help with legal advice, business, branding, and of course, the art and science of midwifery. We believe that midwifery is about relationships, both between a midwife and client, and especially between midwives themselves. And that's why we hold an annual conference and live hands-on skills sessions across the country so that you can connect with other midwives and further hone your skills at the same time. Please come follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or wherever you get your social news. At the Midwifery Wisdom Collective, we believe your self-care is just as important as the care you give to your clients. We commit to adding to your well-being as well as your professional development. Take care of yourselves because we need you. Welcome home, midwives. Uh, one of the things that I found that really works with mothers is to believe in them. And when a mother says something's not right, something is not working, something's wrong. I agree that totally. Uh, next month, I will become 40 years a pediatrician. So I always said to my younger younger colleague, please be this on the mom. If she is worried, then you have to think twice or look twice what actually happened because they have this, what they call uh, sensitive sensitive feeling that they know that the babies, you're right, the mother. The mother is the expert. The mother's the expert. And so, for example, we had a pediatrician in the U.S. who examined the baby that was not breastfeeding just days, three days, four days. And the mother of the mother, the grandmother, was a lactation consultant and the Leche League leader. So it was very confusing to me that there would be problems. And the birth was wonderful. The pregnancy was good. And the mother just kept saying, something is not right. My baby has something wrong. And the pediatrician kept saying no. And you know what? We found very far in the back was the, the cleft soft palate. And, you know, it was the mother who knew it. How, how about you, Preta? I know you're still chewing. Sorry. I just want to, 
I, I just recall the time that we met in Jakarta and you were breastfeeding. <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to hand you the microphone. Tonight is like, um, I lost words. Uh, so, uh, 10 years ago, uh, I just like, I was uh, wondering that someday you, Ibu Robin Lim and Ibu uh, Dr. Utami uh, will meet in face and then walking together side by side. And then tonight, it's like the dream come true. So I don't know how to describe my feelings right now. It's just mixed feeling. Thank you. Both of you are my blessing, my guru, not just breastfeeding or gentle birth guru, but also my life guru because uh, the gentle birth and the breastfeeding moment for me is like the challenging moment. Mm-hmm. Ibu Prita, can you tell us a some of your advocacy because you've had an enormous impact on the families in your country so i want you to talk about that just a, a bit okay i know you're shy and very modest but yeah uh i was um i'm a former health journalist in jakarta indonesia and it's like um ibu robin and dr otami said that um maternal death and baby uh, and then the breastfeeding rate in Indonesia is very very low oh sorry very very the breastfeeding rate is very low but the maternal health is very high uh, and then um, I wrote about that phenomena and then I met Ibu Robin uh, with her gentle birth um, concept and philosophy um, which the concept um, it's like yeah it's like but it's just birth but uh, Ibu Robin can can tell me that um, breastfeeding uh, sorry uh, birth is not just giving birth and uh, uh, yeah giving birth is just giving birth but it's um transformational moment for a woman in life and that happens to me and my family now uh, i'm working as a bird doula and breastfeeding counselor so the yeah also uh yeah i'm facilitating the training in, uh, for indonesia breastfeeding center central lactasi indonesia and yeah so that that moment uh, changed my life so it's like yeah it's like my turning point to do something not just writing but uh due to the woman and the baby Mania, Mania Omar. Yeah, Mania Omar is uh, the chairwoman of uh, the Indonesian Association of Breastfeeding. Yeah. So I'm a mother of four. Uh, I I breastfed all my kids, 
And uh, now, um, it's been my 13 years with Indonesian Breastfeeding Mothers Association. I'm one of the founders. There are two, 22 founders of Indonesian Breastfeeding Mothers Association. And I'm now the chairwoman of it. And we have, uh, we have uh, 18 branches all over Indonesia, provincial levels. And the midwife... The midwife birth of Aimi is here too. She's over there, <laughs> Dr. Utami Rusli. Because uh, when uh, we started as a mailing list before, mailing list back then, like in 2006, it's like hit, like no social media, other social media. So we just make uh, uh, a mailing list and then we met with some mothers and then we met her in, a, I think in a coffee shop near your uh, yeah, near your uh, doc, uh, your clinic, and then she said, "Oh, uh, we said we don't want to do something only online. We want to do something offline." And then she said, "Oh, you good, good. You should make Indonesian Breastfeeding Mothers Association." So the name comes from her. <laughs> She's been our advisors of board since then too. So, yeah, thank you, Dr. Utami, for taking me to this point because um, I think breastfeeding. Is a is a blessing for me. I got to sit here because of breastfeeding. I got to see a lot of mothers, and also I got to see the world by breastfeeding. I got to see I I got to see the conferences. So it's um and also I I made so many sisters all over Indonesia because now the volunteers we all volunteers in IME. We only have two workers uh, as our admin in the office because we have a very tight budget we, we cannot have a big space so our office is very small but it's enough so far but all of us are volunteers uh, from the chairwoman even to the division head for even the counseling we are counselors all are volunteers and um, uh, and I, I believe the strongest power in our organization is the people the mothers who are willing to work for because of her heart, because of her passion on their spare time because they have something else to do. They're a housewife, they're sometimes uh, government offices, uh, officers. So they do a part-time thing for IME. So I have to say we are the, they are, we all are the, the strongest resource that we have right now. Um, and what's the mission? Yes, and the mission is one, is to increase the percentage of breastfeeding mothers in Indonesia. That's our mission. And so what are the programs that help you get there? Uh, we do, th uh, three pillars of our work is protecting, promoting, and supporting of breastfeeding, and also the infant and young child feeding um spectrum also because we want to make sure that families also give a uh, complementary good complementary food uh, for the for the family too for the kids and the baby so so we do classes we do advocacy works to the government um, we do trainings and all of it self-funded sometimes we work with the company too but of course we have strong guidelines strong ethical code we have all volunteers have to sign uh, an, an agreement that they don't work with um, 
formula company or the affiliations of the formula company. So yeah, we have a code of practice. We also work with international NGOs like UNICEF, um, Save the Children, and we are the focal point of International Baby Food Action Network, IPFAN. Uh, so the focal point is in Indonesia is IMI. Because, uh, yeah, we've been, uh, every time they need data, if they need um, doc, uh, s- uh, report, usually IME is doing it for them, mm-hmm. for Indonesia. And do you know the American Women's Infants and Children, WIC? Yes, is I know. Is kind of a counterpart? Is it similar? We're more like Lale Cilik, because WIC is more like uh, PKK. Yeah, so like government-owned. And I noticed that WIC also provide formula for the, yeah? So we don't do that. <laughs> we know I never do that. So we're more like Lale Chilik. Uh, but in um, maybe Lale Chilik already like international board. They have a lot of branches all over the world. We do it in Indonesia, uh, only in Indonesia. So and But we have a national and international networks too. So it's been a very wonderful journey for us and for me especially being here is one of like my dream to meet Ibu Robin too. I think this is like she, she, yeah, I know I got goosebumps yesterday the first time I met I was like oh my god oh my god <laughs> there is a funny story but sad actually <laughs> there's a so Prita is my doula I want to give birth. Uh, I want to have feedback on my third, uh, uh, third child, but unfortunately, it doesn't go as our plan. Uh, yeah, we've been waiting for forty, almost forty-three weeks of gestation. So it's so big, and even the doctors is not recommending the midwives also. So my husband, after we gave birth, uh, after I gave birth, and then my husband told me and Prita, if you're pregnant again. I'll take you to Ibu Robin in Ubud with number four. Yeah, actually, uh, we are sister, yeah? Sisters. Breast friends. <laughs> <Breast> sisters. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, my name is Hikma. I'm a breastfeeding counselor and I'm a general practitioner uh, in private hospital, but... Uh, I'm to be honored here because I came with Dr. Utami Rusli, my beloved, uh, our beloved mothers in Indonesian Breastfeeding Center. Yeah, all called Central Laktasi Indonesia. Uh, we call Selasi. Yeah, uh, she's the founder of Indonesian Breastfeeding Center. One of the founder, but <laughs> yeah, one of the founder. There's uh, there are how how many founder, Dr. Utami? Eight, yeah, eight, yeah, eight founder. Uh, one of them is uh, ex Ministry of Health. Indonesian Breastfeeding Center is um like a organization, uh, NGO, non profit uh, organization that uh, have vision uh, to help uh, and support mother for breastfeeding. Yeah, uh, yeah, counselor. Yeah, to help uh, and support breastfeeding. Yeah, so we have uh, 40 hours uh, training for breastfeeding counselor, uh, the module from WHO UNICEF. Yeah, and the difference uh, between others uh, organizations that also have uh, training, we have uh, our revision edition on module, the new one, uh, 2011 uh, revision that have competency. 
So uh, the the other uh, the uh, before uh, the model before they have no uh, competency, but now uh, Indonesia Breastfeeding Center um, train with yeah emphasize with this and work together with uh, IME also uh, and uh, other international uh, non government organization like uh, UNICEF UN uh, uh, like Save the Children. And World Vision of uh, World Vision Indonesia, and then UN UNICEF. Yeah, we also uh, protect breastfeeding in disaster. Yes, like uh, the past time, uh, we go through Palu in Palu, the one uh, apa tuh, Sulawesi Tengah, no uh, center of Sulawesi Island that have disaster. You know, uh, yeah, a year ago. No, no. Sulawesi, yeah, a year ago, yeah, uh, we work with UNICEF to to help uh, breastfeeding there. There are so many donates there, formula donation. We learn so many things uh, from uh, Dr. Utami uh, that uh, breastfeeding is life survive, life saving, right? Sorry, life saving, right? Uh, so no need uh, that donation, yeah. Yes, doesn't help. Uh, even in the um, become uh, there is more problem with the uh, that donation like diarrhea, yeah, infection like others, yeah. Because we have no uh, hygiene water. The first uh, massive earthquake tsunami occurred in Indonesia. I think it's the twenty fourth of December two thousand and four. So UNICEF was the first organization, well, not the first, the second after the Red Cross landed in Aceh. So we were like about four days after the uh, the tsunami, the disaster. So we were there, and of course it was horrible, beyond imagination. Yes. So since then, but it was amazing that the international uh, NGOs, you know, corporations, they just, by nature, they gather to support because, uh, yeah. At the time, the portable company is still very, very strong. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a lot of, <coughs> yes. I went to one of the barracks in, 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 in uh, I think in Malabo or something like that. In Aceh, in Aceh, Malabo. And uh, half, of, half of the city is gone at that time. And there's a two months, two months old baby, and uh, breastfed, in good positioning, good breastfeeding. And then when I'm talking to the mother, uh, behind her is a pile of uh, uh, what we call it, uh, uh, complementary food. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, complain, that time nobody knows about that. But the amazing is when I'm asking her, "Do you have another child? Is it a compliment food? No. Then what? What for is that compliment? It's two months old. And I don't know. Uh, somebody gave up, is that to us, and we just give it to the baby because there is there. So that time in yeah, in Rodis. And the baby is the infant. The baby is breastfed good, but because you know, they just distribute that, you know, cra crazily. You know, a good a good baby with a good uh, position, a good a healthy baby of two months old, 
and a pile of two or three piles of baby porridge. If I may add something, the promotion of um, formula, infant formula, and also food for children, young children in Indonesia, is massive, very massive, and they're doing it, I think, grossly. How to say it? I mean, unethically, unethically uh, because um, they they made it. As if, if parents don't give it to their kids, then their kids won't grow uh, well. They scarce mothers. They won't get enough nutrients. So, and also the donations on, because we have a lot of um, earthquakes, tsunami, and also a disaster. We, we, the donation also come a lot. And then sometimes the formula even are close to expiry date. And bes- and also, some, Dr. Utami always said in her presentation, I remember in Jogja, some mothers are breastfeeding, but because some are given formula, then the mother who's breastfeeding also want the formula because she will ask why that woman got, why I didn't get. I also want that. And they, they stop breastfeeding because of that. So it is very dangerous and very unethical because, you know, maybe compared to America, we are still a little bit better because we have the adoption of the code of uh, breast milk substitute. Not in the state. state. I'm sorry. With your president, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm also sorry. (laughs) I love you. No, no. Uh, I'm sorry. sorry. Very mutual experience. But, yeah. he he keep yeah the government your government keep pushing it in the UN meetings they even push the Nicaragua have you read in the news yeah so because they said that it's um it is um how do you say it it's a free trade but what's so free if you're also abusing the child's right what rights of a mother also women because it's a free trade, but it's the consequences are impacting the vulnerables. So this is, I think, it's it's very um, for us. This is very strong and very very upsetting, because in Europe, let's say one brand like a big formula brand in Europe, they're following the code. They put all the food for the children less sugar, but when they come to Indonesia. They do it wildly. They promote it to the health workers. So it is very frustrating. And they used all the professors, all the smart people, and also doing the lobby, high-level lo- high lobbying. So this is very frustrating because we are one of the countries that has very high birth rate. Even, yeah. So we are very lucrative, very, very lucrative market. So again, if we compare Indonesia, let's say to India, India have very, very strong regulation on to protecting breastfeeding and infant feeding. So the sales of formula is very low because uh, it's not increasing. In Indonesia, they see it's a very potential market. 
you if you see in the euro monitor you will see that industry formula companies they're projecting indonesia china is the target now you remember yeah in four years the 70 percent uh the the what keuntungan was keuntungan profit it's increased in seven the the profit increased in four years 70 percent in indonesia four one two three four 2000, 2010 to 2014, 70%. Yes, the profit. So they call it wide goal. <laughs> yeah, and the breastfeeding rate in Indonesia is very low because uh, one of uh, the, the most tra uh, tragedy uh, background is the cross-promotion. Yeah. Do you know that in Indonesia we have breastfeeding uh, um, formula milk for breastfeeding mom and then formula milk for pregnant mother and then a formula milk for a hijab woman? Yeah. 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 Have you heard Jack Newman? The pediatrician from Canada. He's a, a, the rock star in breastfeeding, if I may say. If you send him an email and ask him about breastfeeding, he will respond within 24 hours. He helps so many mothers all over the world. Yeah. You want his email, I will give you. So he's very, he's, he is very, he's one of the strongest uh, breastfeeding advocate in the world. If you have a chance to visit his clinic in Toronto, you have to go. Okay, okay. Anyway, when he came to Indonesia, uh, I took him around. I translate him doing presentation and I got, I got lucky. I have to take him around too. So I take him to see the sightseeing of Jakarta and also took him to one of the biggest supermarket in Jakarta. And he was so shocked. Before, he always said that the to follow on uh, the uh, growing up milk is a gift. He said it as a gift from the code because of the code of formula uh, uh, breast milk substitute. Because of the code, then there is growing up milk. Before there is such, no such thing of growing up milk because of the code. Then there is a growing up milk. But now, whenever he give presentations, after I took him to the supermarket, he give Indonesia for example and a bad one. I'm sorry. <laughs> he said. In Indonesia, there is a formula, special formula from birth to death. Because we have, you have to go to the supermarket, Coco Mart or whatever near here, and see the aisles. Because we have formula for infant, we have the follow-on, we have the growing up, we have the toddler's one, we have the, the, the uh, no, elementary school, and we have for teenagers to get tall. We have the one for the breastfeeding mom. We have the one for the pregnant one. We have the elderly one. We have to have the six-pack one. We have the one to get thin. We have the one to get fat. We have, and even we have the one that for hijabi because they said they add another. Yeah. They add vitamin D. Oh my god! Oh my god! Because not enough. 
sun exposure. I even, yeah, I asked even, I asked the sales promotion in the supermarket, why you have this? And she explained it very confidently, said, yeah, we have another extra vitamin D because if you hair hijab, you get not enough exposure of sunlight. This is so scary. I mean, how they trick people as if like milk is an essential product that we need to consume. Yeah, yeah, there's a formula. Oh my goodness. So your salvation, your salvation depends on drinking milk. Yes. Yes. They sell you this. Yes. But the thing that is so tragic for me was to see when you go to the grocery stores, the milk for the, the babies. Now remember, these mothers who are buying infant formula here in Bali, they give birth in the hospital, and the hospitals have the milk nurses. They're not really medically trained. They're trained by the infant formula companies, and the hospitals are getting a kickback. Yes? It's, it's not just me saying it. It's, it's, it's your turn. The hospitals get a kickback for every baby they give bottles to. And they, and they make the mother and the family feel like it's necessary. And so they give the bottles to the baby. The baby gets nipple confusion. The mother's milk is not stimulated at the essential time, so there's a sabotage on breastfeeding. Then they go home, and the husband makes so little money for his gaji, his paycheck, is so small that... They cannot afford to feed the baby the infant formula. Yes, and they dilute it. But but then when when they go to the grocery store and they don't have the money and they're thinking, how can I get my baby some formula? They will see that the, the cases in the grocery stores are locked. They're glass fronts and they're locked. So that even if your baby's starving, you cannot steal a box of milk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. More sad story about this. Uh, it's an OB from the University of uh, Gajah Mada, and he's he's not uh, he he is dishonest, and so the the university um, fire him. When he go back home, the wife is you know is crying. And the baby is crying. Two, he has two months baby, two two months old baby, and start from last night. They don't have any more uh, formula, yeah. And then because he's you know he, he like he he's very 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 uh, panic, and then he go back to the university, and he try to find something what he can steal, and that's a phone. Uh, uh, Handphone from a, a, a college student, and the college student is in is there in the restroom. When he took the 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 phone, the college student come come uh, open open the, the door, and he she is screaming, and because of you know he's very panic. The OB kill. Kill the the, uh, the 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 student, the college student. But it's a better case. Just because he cannot pay, he become he he become a killer. So, can those people up there can can uh, why can't they see this? If they are, you're right. If they are 
healthy, wealthy, go ahead, I don't care. But the most of our people, they cannot afford. And you know, we have been calculated in one month, if he has to buy, if somebody has to buy a uh, formula, the cheapest formula is 1,685 uh, 1, rupiah. But some of our people have what they call, uh, the, the lowest, standard, the, the, lowest uh, the, lo the standard or lowest, yeah? Sometimes only 1.5. Can you imagine? Oh, it's worse here in Bali. Yeah. It's a, a, a man who's making one juta, yeah. so like what? What is one that? Million? One million. One million. How much is that in dollars? Uh, no, no, not in dollars. Seventy-five dollars. Seventy-five dollars per month, mm -hmm. working six day weeks. They feel fortunate. Seriously. Mm -hmm. the in the, in the, in the villages, the, sometimes one million a month is all they can make. And how much oh, yeah. does it cost an infant formula for one baby? For one baby, for one, one month, the cheapest formula is 1.6880. So it's beyond, their, it's beyond mm. their pay scale. To even only feed the baby, can you imagine if they have other children? The entire family goes hungry. Yes, that's the point. Yeah, yeah and I also remember when I went to the uh, doctor, when I was pregnant, I went to his... Uh, clinic, yeah, and behind his desk is just like a photo of uh, milk, <laughs> a can of milk, and uh, also on his uh, table with uh, with a glass cover, like uh, I can see it see through, uh, so I could see the numbers. Uh, I w well, I have to mention that was uh, it's not Morinaga, the other one. Uh, by this uh, product so he literally told me like yeah i think to oh what do you call it before for pregnant women the susu again yes yes and uh yeah and right i got out of the door well this is it's so fascinating because kind of like the follow-up to this conversation of the destruction of the ecology of breastfeeding we can take it all the way up to the globe, right? Because cows are one of the most polluting items on the planet, this over-farming of cows. So this crazy reliance on milk for every stage is actually a part of the destruction of the ecology of the whole planet. Yes, that's true. There is a, a research on the impact of infant formula feeding of, of babies on the ecology of the planet. And it, it's profound. We're losing our rainforest. We're, we're, it's causing global warming. And it's not really the milk in someone's latte. It's the milk in those baby bottles that's having the biggest impact. So in order to save our planet, we have to start with breastfeeding. breastfeeding. Saving the mothers. Save the moms. Save the planet. We had recently uh, an IPFAN with IPFAN do a report called Green Feeding. I can share you. It's a report that uh, that's it's calculated what is the breastfeeding rate in each country and the formula used, and then they have this calculation. Then uh, what is the impact on the on the environmentally on that region, on the country too? So I think I can share that because it's a good report and it's. It's done not only in Indonesia. There are some countries. So, um, and also, you are very correct. The footprint, the carbon footprint 
of not breastfeeding. It's really big. It's not only the formula. It's the bottles. It's the gas that we use to boil the water. The packaging. Everything. It's so, yeah, the transportation. And then if the child is sick, yeah, because of the formula, then it's also another thing that we have to consider. So I think um, because... Um, Indonesian tend to believe a lot with the health workers. We have big challenge how to convince our fellow health workers, yeah, to at least to to say no to conflict of interest with the industry and to to be upfront that they don't want to work with them. It's also a big big task because. This industry are supported by by a lot of people and very powerful people. And now with the issue of stunting, they use that issue a lot because uh, they trend uh, they tend to scare parents that oh your kids will be stunted if they don't drink enough milk. So it is another thing we need to start preparing on our advocacy and our uh, campaign. And you know, Ibu Robin, uh, recently uh, they targeted midwives uh, and gentle birth issues as well. Yes. yes. Why do they target? Yes, because uh, gentle birth is very sexy issue to to be marketed. Yeah. Yes, and uh, gentle birth in uh, recently is very very uh, hits trend. Uh-huh. Yeah, in Indonesia, it's like a popular, yeah, so. There was one time, and I don't know because I haven't tried it recently, but a few years ago, my daughter and I, we Googled gentle birth. And of course, if you Google gentle birth and you're in California, you get this amazing, like all these websites and information. But we were Googling it here, and it was... Uh, what is it called? Censored. So I thought, oh my gosh, if they're censoring gentle birth, that's the biggest compliment. <laughs> because we made it a household word in Indonesia. You know, I think that's something maybe Ibu Eka can talk about her. She's guilty of part of that advocacy to uh, to just keep, you know, just keep doing your work, doing your work, doing your work until it starts to spread, you know. And our intention was not so much to make it a trending issue, but we realized that we want to advocate for the human rights of all mothers, all children. I joined with Bumi Sehat uh, start from 2005, yeah, because from my trauma, I want to share to other women, because I have a three children. My first daughter was born in hospital. I said a big trauma because my husband cannot come into the rooms. They separate between me and my baby and they give formula without permission. And same maybe like other women, I don't know anything about that because I'm not learning, I'm not preparing. Um, just give my body to the hospital. <laughs> I said, no, no more pregnant. I use IUD, but I'm pregnant. 
again. Oh, Kadek is very clever. <laughs> I said, oh, like I said before, as Balinese woman, it's not easy. If you don't have a boy, many pressure from the family. So, yeah, all my family said, you have to try again until you get boy. I said, this is not about try again. This is a big responsible as a woman, as a mom. And, and thank you. And then I met Robin. So, Ibu Robin gave me charge to get Hanaya. Remember that? Yes. Yes. So, in my third pregnancy, I'm learning. So... Because before, it's only like, yes, doctor, yes. <laughs> Just, yeah. And, yeah. So, it's, it's really a beautiful uh, bird. I try, and yeah. So, that's the first time I hold my baby on my hand. And the first time I know what it's a placenta. <laughs> Because it's still cover, right? Oh, Remember? Wow. Still yeah. cover. It's in the bamboo basket, yeah. And then yeah. it's yeah. like a lotus. Oops. And then we just cry. Because <laughs> before my first and second baby, I'm crying and crying. Because uh, I feel lonely and cold. Yeah. Cold yeah. with the icon and yeah. cold yeah. inside. Yeah. And I'm afraid. I don't know how to push. I don't know how. Yeah. And nobody smiles. Nobody offer me water. It's it's complete totally strangers. complete strangers. Yeah. And then and they do episiotomy. It's make me, ah, no more pregnancy. No, I'm scared. But yeah. my third pregnancy, it's beautiful. So, um, yeah, I'm learning. So from my experience, I'm learning how to breastfeeding. I'm learning how oh, it's Yes, my third son, the boys. <laughs> Like a cheeky monkey. <laughs> so yeah, from my experience, so I try to telling all other women, so how they have to be more um, preparation. It's important, and then breastfeeding. It's important, not just for the baby, but for herself. So that's why uh, how I'm learning from Bumis Sehat. That's why. I'm yeah, big Thank you. <laughs> we we had an initiative that we sent uh, Pastika, beautiful Bumi Sehat dad, and also working for Bumi Sehat in our admin, and we sent him to Waba conference in Malaysia. And we, it, yes, yes, and it was because they said they specifically wanted um, a man to advocate to dads. No, this was many years ago, like two thousand nine or. No, maybe, maybe when you were first in Bumisan, maybe like 2005, 2006. And uh, he came back, and we had a special thing. If the fathers would come back to Bumisahat, uh right before the baby turns six months and, and talk to us about how he uh, advocated for his, his wife to his partner to breastfeed exclusively for the first six months of life, then he would get a special Bumisayat t-shirt. But you couldn't get that t-shirt unless you could prove. And um, Pastika was amazing. He came back from that conference and he said, and he's one of the like, huh? 
No, there it was four. It was four men. Going to Wabai's, you know, when I was still very, very active. Ah, that one was her. So there's a lot of men. But he came. He came back from this conference, and uh, in the car, he said, "Drive me home quickly. I'm going to go and touch my wife's feet and apologize for being the kind of man I am." And we were like, "But you're the coolest of all the guys. <laughs> yeah, all the other women are like jealous of your wife because she's so lucky that you're so understanding." He goes, "No, it's not enough." He goes, "I have not been supportive enough, and now I know." And he used to. He's still such an advocate for breastfeeding, and that's like, you know, I I would say real men support breastfeeding. Yes, I, I agree. I totally agree because I think breastfeeding is not two person; it should be three. The father is very important. I think, and the the the, the waba, the next, the last waba. Mm -hmm. The head one, the, you mean the woman or? No, no, no. The the, the last. Uh, Word, 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 <coughs> no, no. Yeah. word breastfeeding week yeah. in Baba, they, uh, they put two, two figures yeah, in Vietnam and in China. If uh, the, it's only the mother in Vietnam, the successful of breastfeeding is only 6%, I think. But if the father involved, it becomes 25 or 30%. Mm, so, so low, though. Father is very important. Yeah, it's very important, but not a lot of men knows that. And for them, breast is for uh, something else. That's why yeah, not for the feeding. And I think, start from now, I think better if you if the your midwife is you know lactation counseling counseling, ask the father to come. And maybe the mother-in-law. In Indonesia, mother-in-law is very important. That's why you—that's the big one. And also the aunties, because the women here in Bali marry. Yes. Oh, that's the hardest. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. Is it same in Java? Because here in Bali, the you really. The women have to marry to the husband's family, uh, not in Aceh. In Aceh, the husband has to marry to the woman's family for the first seven years. Is it Pada? No, but also in, in our area of Aceh by Malabu, the husband gives seven years of his life. He moves in with the woman's family and every, all his work, all his assets go to her family because women are valued in that culture. Yeah. Because they are that, that, close. Yeah, close. Yes, they're close. But wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. I'm a mother in law. That's why I ask her how you manage to keep your mother in law breastfeeding. Because I need that. I have one boy at home. No, I tell them, I tell my patient too. You know what? If a mother-in-law, you know, distribute your your breastfeeding thing, you stop it, or whatever is it, because they don't know that if the, your 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 grandchildren is not breastfed, they will become sick. They will get cancer. They will get yeah, so. It, coming back, the information of the for the 
because you know when you become a grandparent, you know, we love more our grandchildren than our son or our daughter. Remember that? Yeah, really. <laughs> Wait until you become a grandparent. <laughs> It's important also to encourage the uh, you know daughter-in-law to breastfeed because I remember back then uh, my Turkish um, mother-in-law, even I did not meet her at that time. I was pregnant. Ah oh, no, I gave birth after I gave birth through the Skype. I could not speak Turkish. She, she could not speak English. She was just sitting, <laughs> you know, keep eating and boom like, like that. So. I, <laughs> Nobody but 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 then I remember probably because she raised like seven kids. Oh, so okay. yeah, so she was traditional. She she was like you know big woman with a scarf, she could, and like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so probably see I, I don't think she was educated. Uh, you know, um, well I I assume yeah yeah yeah. I I always wonder if I would have breastfed so long and so strong with my first daughter if I was already finished college. I was a teenager. I was, I went to college pregnant and I rode my bicycle and then she went with me in my, my tied to my body in a baby pack on the bicycle. So she went to college twice, once with me and once, but if I wasn't a teenager and so broke, I was so broke that I had to breastfeed. I couldn't fail. How was I going to buy milk? So I was so blessed to have a baby. I was call her my guru. She's my teacher because she was able to get me breastfeeding. 19. 19. Yeah, so I was really blessed. She's still, she's 43 now. And she became a Leche League leader. And yeah, she, and she had such a difficult time with her first baby breastfeeding. Uh, she she got the cracked nipples the so and everything and in fact one of my friends there she was in Texas when she gave birth one of my friends there is not only a midwife but also a leche league leader and a lactation consultant and we were so confused what is the problem but she was she always put these little pads in there and we couldn't and then one day when she was and and she used to just the latch on was so painful but she was never ever going to consider stopping she would never stop and then she pulled that pad out and she said this thing is is white it must be bleached it must be like baking you know and she said this it must be the 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 evil thing here and she got rid of that <coughs> and just let put a towel on her lap so they could flow and no more problems after that so isn't that isn't that interesting the breast pads where the evil, horrible, she was like having a strong reaction to that. But she never stopped. She never stopped. Uh, my granddaughter is 23. She just is now finishing college. It's her last, her last class. Yeah. Well, not only that, but my granddaughter was born when I was still breastfeeding my son, Hanuman, who is, was four years old at the time. So they grew up together. Ah. Yeah, they grew up together. Yeah. We had when, uh, I think it was about 2003, living in where our, we live in a Balinese family compound, and there was uh, one family rented uh, a little house to another Balinese family from Singaraja, and they had a little baby girl, Putu. And... Uh, 
I was shocked because when they moved there, the baby was already a month and a half old and she was bottle feeding. And I tried to help her relactate. And she she was convinced, this mother was convinced, she had the baby at the, the bidon and the bidon gave the infant, the midwife gave the infant formula. And she was convinced that it was better and no matter what I did. And I remember one night, uh, the, she had one nipple and the nipple broke and the baby was screaming. And I was looking everywhere at three in the morning to find a nipple. I couldn't find, I didn't own a nipple. I didn't have a nipple. I didn't know what to, how to help her. And then, uh, I remember my husband went out at, as soon as, as soon as the store was open and bought her a whole bunch of them. But that baby ended up getting sick, and she, uh, she, f- they went back to Singaraja, and we later heard that the baby, they were so poor, this couple, and the baby got sick, and there was not enough infant formula, and they watered it down and watered it down, and baby Putu died. Yeah. And the next baby was born at Bumisehat, and the next one, and fully breastfed and just absolutely healthy. But I, I still remember this beautiful little girl, and she died from infant formula feeding. And it happens every day, you know. What is it? What is the WABA statistic? Is it still about 300,000 300, per year of report? We can, we can save. That. No, no. 800,000 last time, isn't it? We can save yeah. baby's life, 800,000. Uh, the reported uh, fatalities and and complications, uh, reducing a child's uh, life expectancy and 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 health, is up to three hundred thousand reported per year, through pediatricians reporting that there's side effects of infant formula in Indonesia, and you can imagine that most of the people don't even go to the doctor when their baby's sick. It, it seems like in Indonesia, every day, there's a one, one Airbus plane crash every day. And in that Airbus is a three, three, 400, 400, 423 babies in that Airbus. So actually, every day in Indonesia, we lost that kind of uh, baby. So imagine, imagine if you know that 423, yeah, over 400 people die every day in one country from flying on airplanes. No one's going to fly. So how is it possible if, if women know this, no one's going to feed the baby with formula? There's no one. With our live theme in this episode, I have the great honor of sitting with Abuela Maria, who is uh, a friend of Robin's, lives here in the compound. They have written a book together. But more importantly, um, this episode is sponsored by Mom and Daughter Talk, which is a really amazing book that Maria wrote with her daughter years ago. And I had not known about this, and I just found out about it, and I'm just enthralled. And so I asked her to just say a few things to share this gem with the world. We're going to include a link to this uh, where you can purchase it on Amazon uh, in the show notes. So, Marie, thank you for being on this. 
and I'm so extraordinarily impressed with everything that you do. She's a sovereign food keeper as well and can make anything kitchen witch. Um, tell us about the inspiration to write this book. You know, when I had my own children, I couldn't help but remember my own childhood. <laughs> I remember that when it came time for me to start my menstrual cycles, my mother handed me a book and and just, I put it under my bed and never looked at it. And I remember that because I didn't understand what was happening, I made up all kinds of interesting things about what was happening, and none of which were accurate. So I began putting together also at that time I was working in a private school um, and I became their, um, their sex ed. <laughs> so I put together a slideshow with the help of the mothers of the children of the school and we changed it according to what I and the moms thought was more appropriate <coughs> and it covered all the information really between health and science and emotions that we all know we go through when we begin our menstruation. After doing that, that little slideshow with women for almost 20 years, I decided to retire from doing that and I wrote the book and my daughter did the, the artwork. Interestingly enough, when it came time for my own granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter, to start her menstruation, my daughter came and asked me to come out of retirement and help with my granddaughter and her friends. And I said, well, you know what, why don't you just get the book and get together? But she had such a pleading look on her face that I used my own book and in a group. And I've realized how important that is. I think the book is important and uh, I, I have it in Spanish as right now it's being translated into Indonesian. So you intend for this book to be a tool for mothers and daughters to talk. And there's a beginning section that is for the young woman who's coming of age to explain what's happening in her body. And also, I think, which is the brilliant part, is to begin the education on how to chart your cycle. And this this piece, to me, is just, it, I mean, it's mind-blowingly simple and just so revolutionary in a way like why shouldn't we be teaching our daughters how to track their own bodies cycles like like we do I mean those of us who've been in birth work long enough we're very aware of cycles um, of pregnancy and of um, of menstrual cycles and so to teach our daughters that route from the beginning just it blows my mind and it's awesome super simple and obvious it's like so obvious why haven't we been doing that so that part is exciting and then there's this um, whole section through the book um, partly then about how to hold a ritual for a young woman's um, first men's these first rite of passage and you told me a story about um someone in that you had talked to in Mexico about like their first cycle and I wonder if you just repeat that for me well I felt that the mothers <laughs> including my own daughter were really not sure about their own bleeding I just wanted women to really feel uplifted you know my husband was Jewish um he's now passed away but he 
he was Jewish, and often I would go to the synagogue with him and we would see bar mitzvahs. And then there would be the girls and they had a bat mitzvah, but it was just a copy of the boys. It had nothing to do with their bodies. Mm. Had to do with memorizing a few lines from the Torah and, you know. So that desire just grew in me. And, and I'd also like to go back to the charting for a second because I want to make it clear that many women chart their times of menstruation and they try to figure out things about their cycle from that, it's very important. Also, the girls learned to chart their fertile mucus. I remember that I saw this mucus at age 14 or whatever, but I didn't know what it was, and it just, maybe I thought, well, maybe I didn't wash myself, or, you know, I just didn't understand what it was. I've had women who went to doctors and didn't know what it is. Um, a friend of mine told me about a woman whose mother took her to the doctor every time she had fertile mucus and the doctor gave her antibiotics. You know, I think as women we have to take our bodies back and our power back and that's, that's, that's it. <laughs> that's so completely it. And, and the sort of continuation in this book, which is just exceptional, uh, goes into then uh, fertility and conception and pregnancy and breastfeeding, and even through the life cycle into being in menopause and being a wise woman. And um, there's this this great lack of knowledge in our culture, um, in all cultures, really, because of this patriarchal colonialization that took over <laughs> ancient indigenous knowing. But you experienced a really profound um, example of this when you were a new mother, I think. Are we, are we talking about the breastfeeding yeah. example? Well, my own mother told me that when she was in the hospital with me, that there was a young woman in the bed next to her who was nervous about breastfeeding. And she said to my mother, when are they going to come and poke the holes? Not knowing that the milk would naturally flow from her own breast. And that's really giving power to the establishment, it seems to me. Wow. Yeah, that just, it, it makes me speechless and sad. It makes me so sad. And I think, I mean, Robin here in Indonesia has encountered many examples where folks don't understand their fertility or don't understand how they go pregnant or don't understand how, you know, so much of it works. And knowledge really is power. And this book does exactly that. It gives young girls it gives uh, mothers young mothers an opportunity to communicate with each other in this beautiful framework um, and then to make it celebratory so I'm just so excited to share this with the world um, it is called mom and daughter talk um, and it can be found on the link that we'll share with our show notes uh, and it's on Amazon in English and in Spanish and soon Indonesian so thank you Maria thank you so much Thank you so much for inviting me. So hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I have the deep honor of sitting in person with the amazing Eva Robin. Chokes me up. We just did a birth together here at the Bumisihat. <laughs> yes, we did. It was a beautiful woman who um, I didn't know, but after the 
after the fact showed us her C-section scar and her episiotomy scar. And uh, nobody would help her because she had a cesarean and her first baby was born with no, um, no anus and she died seven days later. And so uh, the, the authorities, the health authorities, told the healthcare providers that she had to have a repeat cesarean and they had no money and they came to us uh, in a very dis- desperate situation and she took the vitamins, she went to prenatal yoga, she had an incredible positive attitude and she gave birth very gently and beautifully but she did have a quite a big tear. Um, her daughter is named Angel mm-hmm. and uh, so Angel has a baby brother today. Mm-hmm. This was her third baby, two surviving. We were working with um, Agnes, who's a beautiful younger midwife at Bumisat, and then um, Navy, Bidan, Bidan means midwife. Bidan Navy is a mother of one, and she looks like she's in high school, but she's got 17, almost 18 years of experience uh, very in, a, in the very busy Bumisat practice, and before that she worked in hospitals, where she was not very happy, but she was renowned for being kind and loving. Well, she came to us, uh-huh. and she said, you know, I hear that you want kind people, and she said, I'm, I'm not doing well in the hospital. They don't like me because uh, they make fun of me because I love the patients. I love the mothers. I don't really think of the mothers that we look after as patients because they're not sick. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do have a certain number of high-risk mothers, and we work very hard during prenatal care to try to mitigate that and make it better so that they can have gentle, natural, beautiful deliveries of their you know they the women want to do the work they really do they don't want to have cesareans on schedule yesterday I spent most of the day at the hospital with um, the beloved Dr. Hariasa Sanjaya who's a gentle birth OBGYN here Um, and because we had a first-time mother with premature rupture of membranes um, and no contractions and no dilation and a breech baby and Dr. Hariasa was very good with let's just see what happens but the baby went into some deep distress so um, and we don't really know why um, everything seemed fine with the with the belly birth Dr. Harriasa said that there were no problems with the umbilical cord the baby was healthy but she did have some really bad D cells and consistently over a long period of time um, because we really were hoping and holding out for for um, Ibu Fifi to have the natural childbirth that she wanted. So um, it, was, it was good, though. We, we talked about belly birth and how sometimes that's just the perfect miracle. We don't want anyone to feel guilty or bad because they had a belly birth. Uh, I find that when I do public speaking, uh, when I ask, in any country I've been in, when I ask the mothers sitting there uh, how many of them had belly births, so, so, so many have had belly births. And I say to them, thank you. We don't know what the situation is. I can't, I can't know just standing here, having just met you, just looked into your eyes for the first time. But each of you, there's a story. And so for some reason, your baby was born by belly birth. And I want to thank you for doing whatever you needed to do in that moment to help your baby come earthside in the safest way possible. And many mothers also feel like they didn't need the belly birth. But I still want to say thank you because fate is what it is, and we don't want any mother feeling guilty or bad, and it's really one of my life missions to try to mitigate some of that suffering caused by mothers having regret about the births they had. You know, it's interesting whenever I talk about birth trauma in my own practice or with midwives, 
I always say that uh, birth trauma is caused by unmet expectations, not by what was done to them. A cesarean is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is believing or not leaving space for any other kind of possibility. So expanding our perception and thinking that really anything is possible in life and in labor is the way to mitigate birth trauma, I think. It seems to be working. Yeah. <laughs> we, we try. I, uh, Last, uh, not last July, July before, so it's been about a year and a half now, um, my daughter was in California. She has her PhD in reproductive health. She's a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine. She grew up here in this village and all around midwifery. Uh, I remember at one time when she was 12 or 13, she said, well, that was my 100th birth to me because she would come in and babysit the other children and clean up after the midwives and rub backs and just take care of things and she was to start she was our little doula mm -hmm. and uh so for zoe my daughter she was my third baby she never imagined that she would end up with a belly birth mm -hmm. and at se seven centimeters she felt a tremendous not good feeling and i felt it in the room and i looked at her and she said something is not right and the baby's heartbeat was plummeting and we moved the two blocks to the hospital in Santa Rosa and she ended up having a belly birth and um, the grace with which she has handled that um, and you know going from absolutely confident that she would have the kind of birth that her sisters had you know at home and um, into the hands of her own mother and then to be moved into a hospital system that wasn't very nice to women of color. And um, my daughter was being treated not well. And, but we were able to, her husband and I were able to mitigate that situation without having to involve her emotionally in that and to let her go through her graceful experience as it needed to be. And um, she's now expecting her second baby and planning, of course, uh, to be here with mom. And, um, and she doesn't want to be in the American hospital system again, although she has really good insurance. Uh, she would rather be here at home in Bali where she was raised, where she went to school in the village, where all of her friends from childhood are, and where all the midwives that she knows and loves, and where Dr. Hariessa is, because she knows Dr. Hari. Um, so that she knows that if by the slim chance she ends up not having a VBAC. She's going to have the circle of support that she needs. It's so lovely that you, what you have created here. I've just been in awe. Not only does everyone know you, everyone, from the motorbike rental guy to the taxi driver to the person who runs the restaurant to the guy sweeping this, everyone knows Ibu Robin. But more than that, it's not just a no, it's a love. And what you have built here, what you have woven into the fabric of this community is, is really exceptional. Midwives do this all over the country, all over the world, right? We build community. That's like one of the jobs of midwifery. Uh, but the success and the degree to which you have done it, not just in this village or in this country, but actually globally, people align themselves with you. People say, oh, I know Ibu Robin. That, that's a pretty, I think, a unique thing and and I'm putting you on the spot because we didn't rehearse this at all <laughs> we just came out of a birth room and set up recording equipment but 
I'm going to put you on the spot and and say, why do you think that is? Why did this success, why did this fame, why did this connection globally happen for you and how? That's an impossible question to answer because I actually am quite shy. And I really um, never wanted to be known by anybody except maybe my close family and you know, for me, it was one mother, one baby, one family at a time. And we have an amazing team of midwives here. We also really, really lean on our doulas. We love doulas. And as my friend, Dr. Iftikhar Mahmud, he's with Hope Foundation in Bangladesh. And uh, they're helping not only the Bangla women, but they also have the main hospital that cares for women and babies. In, um, in the Rohingya refugee camp where over a million people are living under tarps, plastic tarps. And uh, one of the things that Dr. Mahmoud and I, Dr. Iftikhar Mahmoud, share is this belief that every single woman deserves to be in the center of a golden chain of support. And the circle of support is so special. And if you give everyone in a community the opportunity to be a link in a golden chain. And think about it, you know, in Bangladesh, I saw women who were absolutely very, very poor, but they had a tiny little golden chain. Maybe it wasn't even real gold, but it was precious to them. And what's in the center of that golden chain around their neck? The woman, the mother. And so we really wanted to give everyone over these, it's now I'm in my third decade of being here in Indonesia, and I wanted to to work with midwives, with birth keepers, with doulas, with administrators here, with our people that are our housekeeping staff and our cooks, with our gardeners. We wanted all of us to be able to hand everyone coming into the Bumi Sehat area, we wanted to hand them a chance to be a link in the chain, in the golden chain of that circle of support for mothers. And of course, what's in the center of the mother is the baby. And that... That's how we say we're creating peace, one baby, one mother, one family at a time. So it's really important. I just love that image of that's precious to the poorest women in the world, that they're in the center of a golden chain that's a circle of support. And really, I mean, the people that you have been picked up have helped you to get transportation to where you need to go since you've been here in Bali. They all know that when they had their babies at Bumi Sehat, they were an essential, one of the most important, strongest links in that chain. I mean, beautiful Bapa, which means father, Anga, who was holding his wife, was holding Dita when she gave birth and crying. You know, she will remember forever that he was there and that he was pressing on her gallbladder 21 points to help bring the baby forward and, and that tears were dropping from his face onto her. In her, in her last moments of labor, she will never forget that. And that is such a strong circle, that, cha- that link in that chain that he built with her. And he, that happened back when he was supporting her through her first pregnancy and birth and loss because they lost that first baby. And then the second one where he advocated for her and he brought her. They don't live close by. And they're really poor. And he brought her to Bumi Sehat, and he got to know the midwives with her. He came to the childbirth classes. He rode her on the rickety old motorcycle to the prenatal yoga classes, which are free here twice a week. And there's so much 
that we can each do. You know, the, the woman next door who made them a meal when they came home with their baby, the midwives from Bumisehat who got on a motorcycle two at a time and went to check on breastfeeding in the first week postpartum. There's so many things. You know, we don't assume that a mother and father that have their baby here, or it might not be a mother and father, because we are the one place where same-sex couples um, can have a baby and be treated with honor and respect. And so, but we don't, we don't ever assume that a family has for exactly the money to put minutes on their phone so that they can call us if they need us. So in prenatal care, they'll be asked, we don't want to embarrass you, but if you don't have Pulsa, it's called Pulsa, um, on your phone and you need it, you just tell the midwives and we will get you some Pulsa. We will buy that for you so that you can communicate with us. You know, we don't ever want anyone to be left high and dry. We don't assume that anyone has the money. You know, you don't say to a woman living in a little tiny rented room that's not on her island, that's far from her family, and you don't assume that she has proper meals to eat. So many of our mothers are living off of this noodle soup, that, you know, like ramen soup, they call it Indomie here, or sari mi, and it has tons of MSG in it, and it's not healthy, but it fills your belly. And we don't want anyone to be embarrassed, but we do say, hey, you know, we have a we have a load of sweet potatoes that someone brought by. Would you like to take home from sweet potatoes? Because sweet potatoes are medicine. They're not only food. They, they strengthen the whole body, and the uterus especially likes sweet potatoes. So there are all these little things that we try to be considerate of. We never, we have, my office is full of donated baby clothes. They're so nice. And housekeeping, make sure that they're all washed and they're nicely folded. And, you know, every mother gets a packet if she wants it. And uh, every mother gets, every dad gets a book called Asi Exclusive Dong, which means exclusive breastfeeding dude. And because we know that women so often in Balinese culture they normally marry to the husband's family compound. So if his mother or his auntie believes in bottle feeding, formula feeding, it's going to be hard for that mother. They're going to try to take the baby away and feed the baby bottles. And then the salary of that family, that, that, that partner of hers, will not be enough to pay for infant formula. So it will get watered down. And the cascade of effects that cause over 300,000 recorded deaths of infants in Indonesia a year, you know, and these infants are murdered by the, the giant corporations that push infant formula and that give kickbacks to doctors and to midwives to promote infant formula by giving every baby born in hospital a bottle. Now, fortunately, we have a national program in Indonesia that absolutely forbids that. And fortunately, exclusive breastfeeding in the first six months of life is a national policy. And our midwives are sterling at promoting that. They're beyond, they're beyond wonderful. Yeah. And that's partly due to you and your teaching. And as I look around and I listen to what you say, part of the exceptional piece of what you've created here is these incredible systems. You have cooks and gardeners and laundry and midwives and doulas and postpartum rooms and yoga rooms and like this infrastructure this systematic development that this is what I think is so exceptional because midwives all over the world give away baby clothes and and food sometimes and and look after their clients but you're doing it on such a scale Th that's the part I think that is so miraculous and 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 that's the part I think this needs to be reproducible and I'm wondering if you have some 
some knowledge as to how. I mean, certainly you're making more clinics. This is why I'm here. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, m- more than just more clinics here in Indonesia or in the Philippines, but actually the globe over. What is the secret? How do we create bigger, broader missions that serve more people with a midwifery model of care? That's a difficult one because in order for a midwife to do what the midwives here at Bumi Sehat have done with, with my guidance... Um, I don't do the work alone. You know, we work together as sisters and best friends. I mean, it's something at three in the morning when the midwives look at each other and we go, oh my gosh, it's three in the morning and we're not even tired because we're working with our best friends. Uh, They each have families that are supportive of them. I have a family that's incredible supportive of me. I have a community that's supportive of me. And that really needs to happen I, I mourn when I hear about things in the world, for example, midwives infighting, midwives not being supportive of each, of each other. There's plenty of work, um, and there's plenty of stress associated with that work because there's, there's so much we have to do and be for the families that we're looking after and for each other. And we come from this really, in Western civilization, if you want to call it civilization, there, it, uh, I call it the colonized civilizations. You know, um, in my father was very Anglo-European with a tiny bit of Native, Native American blood. Um, and my mother's um, Asian, Filipino mostly, but Pacific Island, and she has two Maori cousins that are alive today, and so she has this rich um, history of being, of being not only indigenous but also displaced because she married to America. And it's foreign for there to be infighting among, among the more indigenous midwives, I find. Um, and the, and the, the more you get towards childbirth technology, the more you get a pecking order, the more you get the Department of Health, you know, blaming the doctors and the doctors blaming the midwives and the midwives blaming the traditional birth keepers. So... We, we as women need to hold together in love and support each other and give each other the tools, you know. If, if you have a midwife in your community that you don't feel is, um, has got the skills she needs, how do we find the ways that we can give her those skills she needs so that she can, she can practice safely, not only for the families, but also for herself? So when we stop arguing amongst ourselves as women, and remember that horrible history of the burning of witches, and think about it, women were, w- women were afraid to make a meal for the, for the mother who just had a baby next door because smallpox could come through the village and kill that baby, and then that woman would be deemed a witch, and she would be killed. She would be burned at the stake. And this, you know, it spread from Europe to North America, and women became absolutely terrified to love and care for and nurture and nourish other women. So it was selected against. You know, if you wanted to survive in early America, you did not, even if you had the skills to help your friend next door, you did not befriend her and you did not take care of her because you might be called a witch, you know? This, is, this was an insidious, unnatural thing that was that was layered upon us and our mothers 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 and so i you know i was fortunate because my mother did not come from that culture of women not 
tending and befriending each other. My father's, on the other hand, my father's mother did come from that, and she was very isolated, and she did not have close friends. She did not have sisters that she enjoyed the company of and spent time with, or, you know, when, when she had her babies, when my father was born and his siblings, nobody brought her a casserole, mm-hmm. you know, and we're changing that. We are reinventing, and, and it's not just midwives. It's all of us, because every single mother out there and every woman out there, whether she has children or not, they're birth keepers. We are birth keepers. It's in our DNA. It's in our hearts. It's so deep. So when we, when we take that and we nourish that part of ourselves and we find that authentic part of ourselves and put aside the fears, and it's not easy. The persecution of birth keepers on every level has been insidious. And it's, you know, we have hundreds of years of this history. But beyond that, we have thousands and thousands of years of loving each other and taking care of each other so that we can bring our babies safely into the world. Yeah, perhaps a millennia of, <laughs> of, of women. I used to, I've always said midwifery is the actual oldest profession. <laughs> because certainly we had midwives helping babies get born from the very, very beginning. Um, and certainly women were helping. But the, the rise of, of many different patriarchal religions, I think, changed that globally. And, and I love your, your focus on, on traditional indigenous cultures not losing that or, or only losing it if they were colonized by this, this sort of white patriarchal thing that happened around the globe. Um, and, and you told me a story that your mother was always lecturing you to give more away when you were a little girl and so perhaps it was that training that led you to to gift yourself to the world like you have (laughs) my mother my mother would say well if god gives you two dimes and someone needs one and you don't give it to them the next time you're not going to get any well she would put fruit on the table that you could see from the window and then she'd say when we left the house She'd say, don't lock the door. Someone might be hungry. That's really exceptional. That, I mean, that, that whole mindset is so not American. <laughs> She's not American. Yeah. She races and loves American culture. I mean, yeah. it was hard for her at first. It was so foreign. And she was so lonely. And, you know, she went from having a mother who was a traditional midwife. Uh, my grandmother was a traditional midwife because during the war, there were no schools in the Philippines. There was no way to seek an education. And she always knew that she wanted to be a midwife because her mother was actually a licensed midwife in the Philippines. So going back to my great-grandmother, she assumed that she'd go to school and she'd be a midwife. But again, we have the tending and befriending and the lovely, juicy women's relationships that existed there, especially in times of strife in the Philippines, that she went with her mother and her mother trained her, and other birth keepers trained her and held her up so that she could be the midwife that she wished to be, even though there were no schools, there was no possibility for her to get the kind of training that she assumed she was going to get. So she got to be an indigenous midwife with the support of her community. And I remember one time I was in the Philippines, and I caught a bunch of babies. So once a month, I'd go to the Department of Health, and I'd, I'd register them and we'd get all of their birth certificates at once. And I was there with Mary Fernandez, who was head of Department of Health in Mountain Province. My mother's from way up in the mountains. It's like, it's like the Peruvian up, up there, the Peruvian mountains, very high mountains. And, um, and I said to Mary Fernandez, I said, do, uh, Manang, do I need to 
um, like sit for the exam in the Philippines? What should I do as a Filipino? I'm here receiving babies and no one said anything to me, but I know there's some hoops I should jump through. And she looked at me and she started laughing. She said, do you know that your grandmother received me and my husband into this world? She said, you're licensed. (laughs) (laughs) She was amazing. And then she pulled out an ancient book that the pages were cracking in yellow. And she showed me the, the handwritten registration of my mother and father's marriage, which was the first, well, it was the first mixed marriage between a white man and a Filipino woman in Mountain Province in those years. And she said, even before that, because my, my grandmother's husband was Chinese, and before that, she said, so you have a family history of this crazy mixed up, mixing bloods. And she said, and, and yes, and she said, you know what they say about you when you walk around the city? It's a mountain city. It was a really lovely place. And she said, people are always saying to me, well, look at her. She walks just like Vicenta, who was my grandmother. And so she said, you have our trust and you're fine. How exceptional. Well, I ask every midwife on this podcast a couple of questions. Can I ask you a few of my standard questions and get your answer? You've been a midwife for almost three decades. What do you know now that you wish was common knowledge? I know now. Very hard to say. Hmm. I feel like I know my limits um, better. Uh, hmm. Hmm. I feel like I'm a better listener. I feel like I'm better now that I'm 63 at leaning on the other midwives and and really empowering them to do the work. You know, I'm not often at birth anymore like when I was younger. I I play a very significant role in raising the money and in helping to set the set the protocol so that everyone is comfortable here. We don't want our midwives and there's 16 of them here in Bali. Well, you'll be working with eight midwives when you get to Bumi Sehat Papua. It's actually called Angel Hiromi Bumi Sehat Papua. Uh, you'll be working with eight midwives there and a beautiful team. Uh, we have four midwives in Aceh. We have four in Lombok. And then we have our Filipino, two locations in the Philippines. But, but trying to do everything myself is foolish. What I know now is that I really can depend on people and that I am blessed to be associated with fabulous women who are birth keepers that are extraordinary and if I make the container for them to be their very best and that means I raise the funds for their salaries so that they're not stressed out and that their families are eating well and their children are going to school and and all of those things if I make the container for our housekeeping staff to have the training they need an ongoing basis to keep the hygiene really beautifully here. And if we honor them, our housekeeping staff, as birth keepers and healthcare providers, because hygiene is really important, then we're going to have a cleaner, happier, healthier environment here. We have a youth center. So I help to raise the money to support their teachers that 
are employed there and they're teaching computer skills, they're teaching English language skills, they're teaching dancing and art and we're hoping to get a bigger music program going. And all of these things are so that these young people can get a leg up in life so that they can shine. And my job now that I'm in my 60s is more to get out of the way and to support everybody shining, especially this next generation of, of birth keepers. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's extraordinary. It really is extraordinary all over the world. So it sounds to me like your advice to others is to use your power and privilege to create containers for others and build connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, that, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I ask midwives two last questions every time. One is, what do you have to offer the world? Well, we know. <laughs> you, you don't even need to answer that one. That seems I'm really excited about after 21 years of duking out over every single word, meaning we just agonized over it. Um, Abuela, who, Grandma, I'm Maria Zenik, Maria Elena Zenik, and I have finished the Natural Family Planning Workbook, A Lifestyle of Nonviolence. And it combines the Billings Method of Natural Family Planning, which is um, charting your signs of potential fertility and then following some rules. There are different rules, of course, and different recommendations for achieving pregnancy than avoiding pregnancy. And also we use um, the signs of the cervix, checking your cervix, so that you can be reassured as, as a couple. And it's a cooperative method. And we really, uh, we're really proud of the fact that finally, finally, just this year, we have... Um, released the book in English and we're hoping this week it has been translated and the layout is being done and we'll be we'll be um, releasing the book in Bahasa Indonesia. Uh, Maria is here. She's left her homeland of Mexico to come and help our birth keepers here to become natural family planning teachers and anybody interested. And many of the doulas are lining up to take the course and and the couples so that they can be empowered to have the size of family they want. This is really important. The other thing I'm really excited about is um, trying to mitigate some of the suffering caused by the climate crisis. We can't call it climate change anymore. We live on islands, and this island nation and my, mother, my mother's homeland, my homeland, the Philippines, suffers horribly from the gigantic storms, and we know that the Earth's crust is too warm, and that's why we're having earthquakes and eruptions, and you know, we're, we are now, we have a team in Lombok who has been since August 2018 practicing medicine and taking care of mothers and babies out of tents since uh, the, ha the north half of Lombok Island, which is our closest neighbor here, was absolutely destroyed by earthquakes. And so we are really trying to mitigate that suffering by, for example, now we're going toward building and we've, we've set the foundation stones and we've purchased the land with the help of Direct Relief International. So we are going to have a permanent location for Bumi Sehat to be serving the people in Lombok. 100% of our mothers and, f and families there are homeless or they're living under blue tarps or in old broken down tents now and in the remains of their houses. So they need help but also working with Jacqueline Aurora and Aaron Ryan and other birth keepers, we're really trying to help prepare birth keepers going into the future for birth in the era of climate change. And what does that mean? And for example, last week was one of the hardest weeks on my heart because we had three mothers come in and advance labor with extreme premature babies due to the incredible heat here. You know that since you've gotten off the plane, it's been an oven in Bali. And it's unseasonable heat. It's 
it's very, very hard on everybody. And it is causing more premature births. And things like, you know, there are articles now being published that we are sharing with the midwives so that they can share with mothers on what do you, what kind of a bag do you have ready to go if you have a newborn baby, just in case you have to cut and run. If earthquake strikes in your home, you know, you want to you want to be you ready with certain things that you can get out of the house immediately, and still have access to things like your identification, um, a, a water filter, a solar light. I'm really concerned that most people are not prepared for what's going on. My daughter, three years in a row, had to be evacuated in the Santa Rosa area because of the of the climate change fueled fires. I think we know that now Australia is literally on fire right now. Perth, Australia is having temperatures that are 140 in the daytime. People are actually cooking meat in their cars because it's ovens, literal ovens. It's really extreme. Um, And certainly we could go on and on about this. My last question for you is what do you need from your international community? Mm -hmm. Well, having six free clinics, community health and midwifery clinics. Some of them only focus on midwifery, but some of them also do basic community health, which means suturing up children if they fall and cut themselves, um, cleaning dog bites. And if we have rabies here now, so if people get bit by a dog, we need to be able to give people the rabies um, post-exposure prolaxis, um, even if they don't have money, and that's expensive. It costs a lot of money to give free health care. So somebody has to pay for it. And my daughters always say, Bumi Sehat is an experiment in social consciousness and love because we have survived through decades because of donations and because of people doing things like one of my best friends, when she turned 60, invited her 60 closest friends and asked them to all give $6. And you know what? They all gave $60. And she's turning 72 now. So she's done that every year. You know, I mean, it's the little things. It's the grassroots little ways that this grassroots organization gets supported. It's the it's the the student midwife in Scotland the other day who I got notification through our PayPal that she made a donation. And not only that, she's making a monthly donation every month. I mean, it's just it's It is amazing. And uh, operational funds, which come with no strings attached, are the hardest thing for nonprofits to raise. And that's what we really need here so that Bumi Sihat can continue its mission serving the people here on the ground and teaching and spreading love around the globe. So I'm going to share in the links um, of this podcast uh, opportunities for those donation buttons to be used. Um, And also we're going to have a little strategy about how to organize a fundraiser in your community for Bumi Sihat. Robin, thank you. Thank you so much for spending spending your time with me, for speaking with me, for sharing your love, and for holding space for all of us, the globe over, to bring midwifery into the mainstream. I want to say what we always share at Bumi Sihat, no matter what, the last thing and the first thing that we say to everyone is, I love you. Uh